To organize the 2022 World Cup, Qatar spent 15 times more money than previous hosts. Why? Also, why does Qatar spend tens of millions of dollars to recruit football legends like David Beckham or Zinedine Zidane to be their global ambassadors? And also, why do states with a bad track record in the respect of individual rights throw billions of dollars in buying prominent European football teams, money that they might never see back. I'm Nikos, and with my colleague, Agustina Vergara-Sid, we will answer these questions today in New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. And our topic today is sport washing. Sport washing is the use of sports by institutions with some dirty track records in order to improve their reputation. So, Agustina, the term sport washing has, has become quite prominent lately due to the World Cup in Qatar. So, what is wrong with Qatar getting the World Cup and why do so many people talk about sport washing? So, I think we need a little bit of context setting here to really understand why this happened, like why Qatar was awarded the, the World Cup when it was really unlikely that it, that it would. Uh, so Qatar was awarded the World Cup, the, won the World Cup bid um, in 2010. So basically, in a nutshell, the process to uh, award a, a, a country the, the bid to, to host the World Cup is basically people at FIFA vote, right? And they consider things such as, uh, well, back then in 2010, it was basically the infrastructure of the, of the country. And if they had the capacity to host the, the World Cup and you know, political stability and all those sort of things for safety and, and such. Um, after 2010, allegedly, FIFA is now considering the human track record of the countries. I have questions whether that's true. But back in 2010, Qatar was awarded the, the bid to, to um, won the bid to host the World Cup versus countries like the US, Australia, Japan, and South Korea. We of course know that the US eventually won the bid to host the next World Cup. But uh, at that point, Qatar won uh, against the US, particularly for uh, 14 votes against eight that the US got. And, and it was the same day, if I remember well, that Russia also won the bid for the 2018 World Cup. So yes. FIFA said, we have all these options. We're going to pick Russia 2018, Qatar 2022. Yes, exactly. It was, it was at the same time that Russia was awarded the, the bid for, for, the, for the World Cup that we saw in 2018. And the U.S. Department of Justice and many other people institutions, institutions claimed that there were bribes that were accepted by top officials of, of FIFA as part of the voting process to elect both Russia and Qatar as the tournament host for 2018 and the 2022 World Cup. It's not me saying it, it's, not, it's, it's a little bit of speculation, but it's the US Department of Justice that is saying this in the context of an investigation that it has been carrying on for years about corruption in sports. So even though the, the infrastructure was lacking, lacking and uh, there were a lot of concerns about that back in 2010, Qatar was awarded the bid, and the infrastructure, uh, so Qatar started building a lot of infrastructure that was part of the deal, part of the promise. So Qatar built seven new stadiums with a capacity to host obviously thousands and thousands of people, 
which were extremely expensive and they are state of the art and everything we've seen them in the in the broadcast of the of the World Cup. It built a lot of hotels, uh, completely redid freeways, built new freeways and everything, and just the general infrastructure of Qatar completely changed for the World Cup and to be able to host the World Cup. The World Cup. Now, how? How much did they spend? Because like, I think you know that information. It's it's a crazy and insane amount of money. It's an insane amount of money. So rumors say that they spent more than two hundred billion billion with a B dollars. Now, how, wh- how much is that compared to previous uh, tournaments? Let's put it this way: all the World Cups that I've watched in my life, the first World Cup was Italy nineteen ninety. I'm that old. But even all the World Cups that has taken place during my lifetime, if we all put them together, they still don't make up for the money that Qatar has spent for its World Cup. And notice something else. Qatar was not a poor country because it would make sense to say, look, a country wants to develop, so they need to build roads, hotels. Qatar was already a very rich, a very rich country. So this money is absolutely mind-blowing, 200, more than $200 billion. So to put it into perspective, Russia in 2018 spent only $16 billion, and Brazil in 2014 spent less than $20 billion. But this is the only, this is not the only way in which Qatar has thrown a lot of money in football. Qatar has has paid David Beckham, the football legend, allegedly $12 million per year for Qatar to be an ambassador of Qatar, basically to tell people Qatar is beautiful, visit and invest. And the question is, is Qatar going to somehow get this money back? My answer is probably, my guess is probably no. So what they're after here is not financial returns. It's not that we are throwing a lot of money in, but we expect a lot of money out. You said that Qatar built eight football stadiums. Well, Qatar is very small football market. It's a small country to begin with, but also it's a very small football market. But this is not the only way that Qatar has been involved in football. Some years ago, a fund from Qatar which is basically the Qatari, controlled by the Qatari government, bought the football club Paris Saint-Germain. Since then, they have brought to Paris Saint-Germain football legends like Buffon, Ibrahimovic, later Neymar, and in the last years, Mbappé and Messi. So for those of you who know football, the three strikers of Paris Saint-Germain are Messi, Neymar, and Mbappé. This required tons of money from tons of Qatari money. And this, you need to understand, it's at the end of the day government money. And they haven't even won the Champions League yet. So again, this is not that they're doing a clever financial uh, financial investment. But it doesn't stop there. Because other players have also joined in this, uh, in this, new, uh, in, in this new thing where, peop- where funds from Gulf states countries buy teams. Manchester City, is effectively owned by the state of Abu Dhabi. Again, it's a fund, but everyone knows that behind this fund is the government. And they have spent billions in Manchester City. And lately, Saudi Arabia also entered the field 
and they bought Newcastle United, one of the most historic and popular and prominent teams in, uh, in the UK. And the question again is, why are they doing this? Do they, ex- do they expect monetary gains? Well, let's see what happened in the case of Abramovich. Roman Abramovich famously bought Chelsea in 2004. Of all the years that Abramovich held Chelsea, it only returned profit three or four seasons. So, Agostina, if it's not for money that they're making this huge investment, if they're throwing this money to what is often a bottomless pit, why would they be doing this? So the reason that Qatar and other authoritarian regimes engage in this practice of what is called sports washing is essentially to cover up for their many human rights, individual rights violations. So in the case of Qatar in particularly, we have like what everybody's talking about uh, when, when it comes to, to the World Cup. And one of the reasons why so many people are boycotting the World Cup, which is uh, the, the migrant worker deaths. So in a nutshell, uh, like we said, there was like this complete overhaul of infrastructure in Qatar and, and building hotels and stadiums and freeways and all of that. And that obviously required a lot of, of, uh, a lot of, uh, of, of workers and Qatar received migrant workers from countries like India, Bangladesh, et cetera, uh, to, to do this. And what happened was that a lot of, like since 2010, which is when all this work started, a lot of workers, like an insane amount of workers have died on the job. So, but there is a lack of transparency here because the Qatari government says that only 30 people, uh, 37 people died from 2010 till today, basically. But human rights organizations and independent researchers say that the deaths are of at least uh, 6,500 uh, 50, uh, workers. And the deaths are being classified by, officially by the government as, you know, heart failure or, you know, this person died of natural causes, which has been proven to not be the case for an overwhelming majority of the, of the people, usually men, who have died. So th- we're talking about overall healthy men, or like mostly young people that have like completely collapsed on the job, like one after the other, essentially with no apparent reason. But the reason is, I mean, according to, to the Qatar government, they'll say, well, these natural causes. Well, it's really not because they, work, they worked in terrible, terrible conditions uh, in the poorest conditions possible, essentially. They, they were close to slaves for some of them. Some reports say that they were forced to work 12, 16 hours a day and year round. So Qatar in the, in the, in the summer is an extremely hot country. Uh, that's the reason why the World Cup is being held now, as opposed to being held usually in June or July when it's when it when it usually happens. Um, and a lot of people also committed suicide because it is speculated because of the terrible work conditions and because the, the passports were being confiscated as well, so they couldn't really leave, go back to their home countries, go see their families because they had no chance; they had to stay there. So that's very important what you said, Agustina, about the passwords, because people throw these days the term slavery around very easily. They talk about modern slavery. But in this case, we have, as you said, something which is not miles away because you have people who are it's very difficult for them to leave. It's very difficult for them to return to Philippines or to the country where they come from. Why? Because their passports are confiscated. 
or because they they have deals that says that if you leave early you don't get uh, you don't get money or that we have a withhold of withholding of salaries so we even saw things like workers turning against each other in violent outbursts with the hope that they would be deported this means that these people couldn't leave this means that this exactly. it's so it's not the situation where you have a quote sweatshop where the conditions are bad but it's an improvement from what used to be there in the country and the most important thing is the worker can say, I don't like it here, I leave. So you're right to make this point that these people not only worked in horrible conditions, but they were not free to leave or they were not free to say, okay, I'm done today, I'm going home. Exactly. And the Qatari government has done next to nothing to fix this situation. And it has lied about the, the number of vets and the causes of vets. Technically, they introduced some world labor law reform or something like that. Nothing really changed. It's still, uh, the problem persisted and they didn't care basically at all. So that is the migrant worker uh, crisis that a lot of people are talking about. But there are like many other issues that are going on in Qatar, like aside from this context of building this infrastructure for the World Cup, et cetera. So I'm going to try to be brief here. This is a, this is a topic that really gets me really angry. But. So under Qatar's guardianship system, which is similar to the guardianship system that we see in many uh, Muslim countries, women have no agency to make their own life decisions, right? So basically the, the guardianship system mandates that women need the permission of a male relative to basically do anything of relevance or important for their lives. So women cannot pursue a career uh, without the, the, uh, the permission. They cannot pursue certain jobs without a permission from a male relative. They cannot marry. They cannot travel without permission. And if they are not married, it's almost impossible for a woman to access some of the most basic reproductive care, such as prenatal care or ultrasounds that are just routine for, for most women elsewhere in the world. Also, extramarital sex can be punished with up to seven years in prison lashings, and even sometimes the death penalty as well. But what, I mean, everything about this, I think is extremely outrageous, but the fact that women do not have access to the most basic reproductive care to me is just something that, that really, I, I find it extremely, extremely outrageous. So for instance, I was reading a, a report from a human rights organization for this, this 20 year old woman that she said when she was 18, she had to lie that she was married uh, uh, and gave a friend's phone number to, to, to the people at the hospital to pretend that, okay, this is my, my, my husband, call him and ask him for permission. To, and she was trying to obtain um, healthcare that it, it didn't even relate to sexual activity. It just, she had a problem uh, like low abdominal pain and she was trying to access healthcare, but they would not even perform a physical examination on her if she would, didn't say that she was married. So she needed, she is not a, she had, she didn't have any, she was like, she was not a person and, and, unless she had a permission for her husband to be one. Another woman, and actually a British citizen that ended up living in, in, in Qatar, suffered from endometriosis since she was 13, but she could not get it diagnosed in Qatar until a few years after getting married, because she said that 
healthcare workers would not allow her to, to undergo uh, certain examinations, including something as basic as an ultrasound uh, or a womb biopsy without a marriage certificate. So she was in horrible pain. Endometriosis is a very painful uh, condition and she was not able to get it taken care of for years until she actually got married. So I know a lot of people don't know this, but the people have to know that this is happening in Qatar. And this is one of the many things that the Qatari government is trying to cover up by you know, hosting the World Cup and, and being seen you know, as like, oh, this great country that is friendly and it's just like the Western countries, et cetera. And but there's here, more, you know, one, yeah, go ahead. One thing here that this information is not that it requires some deep investigative journalism. So if you think the conclave of FIFA, where they had to decide in 2010 who gets the World Cup, this was information that you could find almost with Googling. What kind of society exactly. is Qatar? How are LGBT people treated in Qatar? How are women treated in Qatar? You could find this very easily because you could say, okay, these people are not political. They don't know whatever. This is not information which is difficult to find. So let's make something clear. They gave the World Cup to Qatar knowing perfectly well what type of society Qatar is. So we know these things because some journalists are brave and they spoke up. But at the same time, these are things that were common secrets in a society like, uh, like the Qatari society. But it's not only with women. It's not only women who face a difficult life in, in Qatar. So what else do we have in terms of that regime? Yeah, so um, part of, I, th I think, secondary to the migrant migrant worker crisis, I, I think people have been talking about the treatment of LGBT people in Qatar. And we saw, in fact, uh, an American journalist being detained because he was wearing, uh, I forget if it was a T-shirt or a flag, trying to enter a stadium with a, with, with a, with a gay flag. And he was detained for, for a few hours because of that. But that is nothing compared to what actually goes on in Qatar with the Qatari citizens. So in a nutshell, again, there's a lot going on, but we need a completely separate podcast to just talk about this. Same-sex relations in, in Qatar are punished with several years in jail. And for some cases of, mus of uh, gay Muslims, even the death penalty. Granted, from my research, the, the death penalty has never been actually applied. It hasn't actually happened. But there have been many reports of police brutality against gay people and trans people and bisexual people while in detention. According to some human rights organizations, for, for instance, trans people go through a lot of harassment by what is called the preventive, the preventive security forces, which to my understanding is something somewhat similar to a morality police that we've heard a lot about in Western countries. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the treatment includes arbitrary arrest and detention at you know, clandestine facilities, obviously in, 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 in Doha. And they have experienced severe and repeated uh, uh, beatings um, and sexual harassment. And they, they, they actually put them through actual torture by kicking them in the stomach, kicking them in the head. Uh, there are actual reports from actual people that have gone through this, that have, that have spoke up. And you and, said that uh, this law has not been actually put into action, but the law exists. And here's, here's what I find fascinatingly, in a bad way, hypocritical. 
We live in times where a football player, for in countries like the United Kingdom, they can have their career put in significant risk if they say something that might be considered homophobic. And at the same time, again, the powers that be in football give the World Cup to Qatar, which has in its legislation the things that you just said. Again, these are not secrets that somehow someone did a, a lot of uh, spied into the interior ministry and they found these things out. These are things that are open to anyone. So again, when Qatar gave, the, where FIFA gave the World Cup to Qatar, they knew about this legislation because they could find it very, very easily. Qatar is not hiding it. Qatar is not, is not saying to the outside world, oh, we care about LGBT rights, but inside they do bad things. They're open about how they view uh, gay people. Yeah, exactly. And But Qatar says, the, the emir has said that this is a workup for everyone or for all or something like that. Trying to pretend that he was including gay people, but at the same time, because he was asked that question, what are gay fans going to, can they go? Can they attend the games? Like, can, are they safe? He was like, well, this is a workup for all. But at the same time, he was like, well, don't try to be smart here. Don't try to be, you know, just respect our traditions or whatever. But it's not a workup for all. Like this stuff is happening as the games are going on. And people, gay people that are being detained are released and they're being beaten and tortured and being forced to watch other people being tortured, by the way. This is like the, the, one of the conditions for release, for instance, is that they go through conversion therapy. For those who don't know, conversion therapy has been discredited by science. It's incredibly harmful to, to a human being to go through that, but that is one of the things they have to do. They're put in solitary confinement. They do not have access to legal representation. It is just completely outrageous what goes on in Qatar with gay people. So, and the fact that they say this is a workup for all, well, not for your citizens apparently. And I bet if someone tried to be quote, smart in, in, in Qatar and try to violate the, these regulations, they would get in a ton of trouble. Um, yeah, it's this, it's, this, yeah. Uh, it's this absolutely hypocritical thing which says, we have no problem if you're gay and you come to Qatar. Just don't tell anyone you're gay and don't quote act uh, your like don't hug, don't kiss. Although to 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 be to be very fair, this society actually, as you said earlier, also punishes public displays of affection even to heterosexuals if they are uh, if they're not official married. Although this is not to this is not to say that the treatment of uh, heterosexuals and gays are the same in Qatar. The treatment of gays is much 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 worse and again these things are in the in the open which makes so inexcusable uh, what fifa what fifa did but there are more things we could also discuss things about uh, potential uh, alleged links with uh, various institutions in qatar funding terrorist groups or supporting groups like uh, like uh, groups like hamas and again, they would say, no, we're just uh, have some cultural institutions that give money to for humanitarian reasons. Uh, actually, a football official in the country was linked to Al Qaeda operations. So if we if we go back and when I say we go back, I don't say I, I don't mean go back to the 70s. There were investigations about these things in Qatar in the last decade. So, again, FIFA knew all these things and they decided 
to give the the World Cup to Qatar. So, so what what a shame and what uh, what an embarrassment. And also, not to mention that it's a society which officially hasn't got uh, free speech. There are censorship laws, which in my book by itself should. Uh, so each one of these things by itself should discredit Qatar. Everyone is talking about the violation of workers' rights, which is super important, but there are all these other things. And these things are accumulative, and everyone knew. Now, let yeah. me ask you something else. We're going to discuss a bit about sports washing. And this is not the, f- and again, sport washing, you also have, a, I know you've found the definition and you'll tell us what sport washing is. It's not the first time that an authoritarian regime is using sports to whitewash its image. And an argument says that, well, you know what? Sports brings us all together. Sports brings out the best of us. So maybe now Qatar will change. So Agustina, tell us a bit more what is sports washing, and then let's go back to history and check this claim. Have horrible regimes actually changed when they got some uh, big uh, tournaments and when the world tells them, okay, now the spotlight is on you, be your best self, and let's hope you're, you're going to change. So let's see what happened in previous occasions. Yeah, so uh, sports washing, like, like you said earlier, in the internet, the practice of a controversial uh, company, sometimes or a country in this case, using uh, sports uh, sponsorship or hosting sporting events to improve its reputation. This is according to one of the dictionaries that I consulted. And of course, it's not just to improve its reputation, but to cover for a lot of, their, uh, of the crimes and things that are going on. And we'll talk a little bit about later about how this can backfire, but it's, it's, a, it's a separate story. But so you were asking about what, others exam- what other examples are there. Well, throughout history, there are many, but just in the last few years, we have the 2018 Sochi Olympics, Russia. Russia was, uh, I mean, right now we are all like aware of the, the authoritarian character of Russia because of the, of the, of the, of the invasion of the, of the Ukraine and the continuation of the war and how it has escalated. But Russia was an authoritarian, extremely authoritarian regime way before then, right? We are now like, we see it in the media, but it has been happening for decades. And so we have the 2014 Sochi Olympics. We have the, like we discussed earlier, the 2018 World Cup that was held in Russia. We have the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. Uh, and this is in the context of, the, this just happened this winter, right? And this is in the context of um, China sending Uyghur Muslims to detention camps, right? And torturing and killing them in that way. And one Here's detail an example that, that, of sports washing yeah. in action, so, so, that, so that our audience really gets it. So China, as you said, had uh, the Winter Olympics, and they had an Uyghur athlete lighting the cauldron. You know how they have the, the torch, and you light the cauldron where the fire burns throughout the duration of the Olympic Games. So what was the message? You see, there's no problem with the Uyghurs here. We respect them so much that they light the that they light the torch. This is sports. This is exactly what sports washing is. It comes from the term like white washing. So, again, China saying, "Look, what problem here? We you have the you have an Uyghur uh, lighting the cauldron." So, 
it's in front of our eyes. Again, the, the idea that the regimes use sports washing is not a, a theory that we came up with. We see it happening, and it has, and it has happened many more times in the past. But uh, I interrupted uh, your uh, historical uh, overview of sport watching. So back to you. No, and then, uh, of course, well, in China, this issue with the, not issue, this outrageous thing that is going on with, with, with Muslims in China, it can, it's sort of new in a sense, it's really not, but it's more recent, but China has been in authoritarian regimes for a very, very, very long time. There is no free speech in Russia, in, in Russia, not in Russia either, but in China to, to, a, to a much uh, worse degree. There is constant oppression. We're seeing, of course, the lockdowns and everything now, but that is obviously what the Chinese government would do. Like this is, that is on the nature of, of, the, of the Chinese of the Communist Party. I have written about free speech in, in China and what goes on. It's really, it's unbelievable almost, but it's actually what happens. You can look it up in, uh, the audience can look it up in, in New Ideal Live, in, in, sorry, in the New Ideal uh, website. And still, Russia, uh, China was hosting the 2022 Winter Olympics and associating itself with some of the best athletes in the world and all the virtues of sports. And then we have also something that has made headlines, which is a uh, state-sponsored golf tournament in Saudi Arabia. Of course, what is trying, what is Saudi Arabia trying to cover here? Well, it's brutal oppression of women. It's even worse than it is in Qatar. And I have also written up about this topic. You can look it up in, in New Ideal as well. And of course, it was on the after the, the international outcry of the uh, for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, right? So yeah. this is just within the last few years, right? Like less than 10 years. I started like this account less than 10 years ago. So this is a practice. Qatar is not innovating here in like she did not discover oh my god we can just launder a reputation by hosting the the world cup no this is something that has been going on for many many decades and it seems to be pretty effective and the usual example that comes to mind to many people is that when they discuss sports washing was the 1936 olympics in hitler germany but i want to focus a bit more on another example because in in my estimation, it's the most despicable, the most disgusting, the most horrendous. And this is the World Cup that took place in 1978 in Argentina. And you'll tell us more because you know more about, uh, about the country. So we are a couple of years in the dictatorship of Videla. And this is one of the most brutal dictatorships that one could imagine. Torture, uh, disappearance of people. But I want to focus on one thing before you tell us more about Videla. And this is how sports washing really is not a conspiracy theory or a theory or a fringe idea or something. So what does Videla do when, when he comes into power? Argentina had already uh, taken the World Cup in the pre-Videla days. So Videla says, okay, in two years, there's a World Cup. Here's a good opportunity because there was already a movement to boycott the World Cup because the horrendous things that Videla does were open to the public. So Videla, uh, known, to, known to the whole world. So Videla went and hired a public relation group called Barson Marsteller on a million dollar deal. So there were a lot of money. So Videla says, take this money, go out to the world and persuade them we're not as bad 
as they say we are. So again, conscious effort to say we will use this tournament to tell the world a different story from the sounds, the, the screamings of the people who are uh, tortured. So tell us a bit more then about the 1978 World Cup in Argentina. Yeah, you, you gave some context. Uh, I, I know about this and I've studied it for the audience as no, I'm from Argentina. Um, and th this is a topic of very much uh, an open wound. So 1976, there's a military coup. Uh, 1978, the World Cup happens. Granted, like you said, Nikos, the World Cup was already kind of like scheduled before the military coup happened. But like you said, the military government saw it as a big opportunity to basically launder the image. Why? Because in Europe, the, the, rev, the political refugees, the people that is, were able to escape Argentina because they were going to be killed by the, the military government here, were already talking about it a lot. And it was leaking to the press. We're talking about the 70s, right? There's no social media. There's no really like super fast way to communicate like like we do now nowadays right like we have nowadays so the the government saw this as an opportunity to launder the image and it spent like qatar like an insane amount of money so officially so what the government said it spent was about a hundred million dollars we think we're talking again in the 70s that it was much more money than it is today but Researchers and experts suggest that it actually costed around $700 million. Again, hard to tell because the entity that was in charge of organizing the World Cup was uh, never really presented uh, a report of the expenses. But the goal here was to cover all these human rights, like horrific, like when you, when you said it was one of the worst dictatorships in Latin America, it really, really was. Horrific human rights violation, violations that political, uh, that. Uh, for uh, not just political opponents that were tortured, uh, there was forced disappearance and that, that were killed in the most gruesome ways, but also people that did not um, adapt to the morality that the government wanted Argentinians to have. For instance, gay people. My mom has a friend that was, uh, that was gay and was disappeared, never to be seen again because he was gay. He had no involvement in politics, no nothing. So just we could talk forever about, about this topic, but just to give a little context of how brutal it was. So these tortures, these killings were happening 700 meters from El Monumental, which was one of the main stadiums in Argentina in Buenos Aires, where the, uh, where the World Cup was happening. And I believe I am not 100% certain of this, but I do believe that it was where the last, where the final happened and where Argentina won. So 700 meters, which is, I don't know, I don't, I'm not good with, with the, the American it's system. It's walking but it's, distance. It's walking it's distance. Walking the people who were distance. tortured to listen the, 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 the sound of the, from the, from the field. And uh, during that time, it's during the time of the, of the World Cup, it's, said it's estimated that at least 50 people were victims of forced disappearance uh, during this time, including nine uh, pregnant women. And one of the most gruesome facts about this is when Argentina wins the World Cup against uh, Holland, 
Holland. During the celebration, so everyone goes out to celebrate the, the win and everything. It's like football is huge in Argentina. So uh, it, it, like everyone is out celebrating. The military, the, 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 the torturers took people that were at ESMA at this detention center, it was one of the biggest ones in, 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 in Buenos Aires, took them, took the, the detainees out for a car ride to show them that nobody cared that they were missing. And they told them, you can scream, you, you can open the windows and you can scream that you, that you have been kidnapped or whatever, nobody will care. And like to, to show you like that, that is exactly what they want to show. Like, look, we have succeeded in making this event a success. We have won the World Cup. This is a win for the, for the military government, for the authoritarian government. Nobody cares about the detainees. Nobody cares about the disappearances. You, they, we have won. So it's something that it's such, a, such an example of sports washing. And uh, there, OK, I'll leave it there because I could talk about this for a long time. But Nikos, uh, tell me if you want to add no, anything. No, no, it's, it's the way you put it is uh, no, uh, it couldn't be put in a, in a, in a better way. And it's, it's, quite, it's quite correct what you said. And also, who gives? the trophy to the captain of Argentina, Passarella, the Fidel. dictator himself. Videla himself, yeah. which is quite unusual, usually the president of FIFA, Videla himself gives the trophy to Passarella. And to their, to their, uh, to their credit, many Argentinian, Argentinian players, uh, at least allegedly, they try to avoid taking a photo with Videla. Why? Because they knew that Videla was using them to to white was uh, to white was his uh, his horrendous regime. So here's my and, message uh, in all. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, one 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 thing about that. So a lot of players knew about this, and a lot of uh, of the international of the of the other teams knew about this. The the Dutch team actually did a the Dutch press and and the team actually were somehow very aware of this and the Dutch press actually sometimes instead of uh, you know broadcasting the, the games they broadcasted the march of the Madres de Plaza de Mayo in, in Plaza de Mayo in Argentina which was like all the mothers of um, of the people that were the disappearance would take a, a few laps around the the main uh, public square in Argentina in front of, of the of the what would be the, the Casa Rosada, which would be the equivalent of the White House. Uh, and they would broadcast that instead of the games, the Dutch press. Um, but it was really hard at that point to know what was really going on. So a lot of players, I think, uh, around the world and in Argentina too, were not I think, like, super aware of what was happening. It was really hard. Remember, like I said, this was a time when there was no social media, the, the communication was not as efficient and fast as, as it is now. And of course there was a ton of censorship going on. And of course, speaking up against uh, the military government would like literally without, basically without any doubt would land you in detention or you would be disappeared or you would be killed. So that's a little bit of, of a context of what's, what's going on there. Yeah. Uh, perhaps again the darkest he, the darkest moment in the history of uh, international football and also what, uh, what what a contradiction of feelings by the fact that 
it was the first World Cup that Argentina wins, but the, the players themselves were a bit, they couldn't celebrate because they knew, or they couldn't celebrate as much as they wanted because they knew that, uh, that Videla would use. And actually, Menotti, who was the, the manager of Argentina, uh, he was also someone who, who was against the regime. He was actually a leftist, but the regime didn't dare to touch him because of his popularity. But he knew. The manager of the team knew, and also the players knew. So here's what I want to, I want to say as we, as we reach uh, towards our conclusion. The argument that says, oh, they're going to become better, is disproven time and again by history. Videla Sargent, okay, not to mention <laughs> Hitler's uh, 1936 Germany yeah. obviously didn't become better. Videla's Argentina didn't become better. China 2008, they get the, the Olympic Games, they don't become better. Actually, they become worse. Russia takes the Sochi Winter Games and the 2018 World Cup, actually it becomes more imperialistic, it, be, it, becomes, uh, it becomes more violent. So this idea, that, oh, they're going to be open to the world and we're going to throw them this uh, attack of love and they're going to change? The answer is no. And how do we know? First, we know it because these people take their ideas seriously. They are serious thugs. It's, it's not thugs because they're misunderstood. They're serious thugs and they wouldn't change. But also we've seen it in practice time and uh, time and again. So this is this is the answer to to the to the arguments that say, oh, we shouldn't, uh, or we should, uh, or what about this argument, Argen, uh, Agustina, which says, oh, we let's leave politics out of sports, let, let, let's just enjoy the game. Let's why bring politics into it, which is the usual trope <laughs> of people who have something to hide or of people who wouldn't want politics to enter to enter the field. But what would be your answer to this? quite popular argument, leave politics out of sports. Well, that's basically what the president of FIFA, Jenny Infantino said in, the, in a letter that he sent to the teams, um, to the, what is it, 32 teams in the World Cup, just right before the World Cup started. He says like, basically leave politics and morality out of the, of the, out of the equation, just focus on the football, end of story. And there's this, this quote by, by this um, historian called Gerardo Caetano, who was, um, who was a former fo uh, football player and is a historian, very famous historian. He says, I'm trying to translate it in my mind because it's in Spanish, but he says something like, those who think that sports have nothing to do with politics either don't know anything about sports or don't know anything about politics. And I think that is very accurate. And my answer, to those people is you cannot because like morality let's like, politics is one thing but like infantino is asking to throw morality out the window essentially and morality permeates everything and it doesn't go out the window when a when a football match starts right so when you're trying to get morality out of things and moral judgment out of things i think that is always a problem and the fact that he called for this it means that there is something that we would judge as morally reprehensible in the first place that if we actually look at it we will be like okay i cannot get on board with this right and what infantino was trying to do is to prevent players from uh having some gestures which some players have like in favor of, of gay people like to raise awareness of the migrant worker crisis and all of that but 
also I like to, to say something else related to something you said earlier about you know how these regimes do not become better. They do not become better, but because also their motivation is not to become better. They are not hosting the World Cup. Qatar is not hosting the World Cup to be like, I want to be like the US, I want to be like Australia, I want to be like France or the UK. No, their motivation is to uh, launder their image and to obtain a near respectability from the rest of the world. How? By associating themselves with the teams of the, some of the freest countries in the world and all these popular athletes, not just you know the ones that they're paying, right, to to, uh, to to prop them up, but also they're not paying Messi, but Messi is in Qatar playing, right? And well, also they're Parisians, they're men, so in a way they're paying Messi as well. <laughs> right. Okay, that is true. Uh, but they're trying to link themselves, link the regime with the genuinely admirable values that are represented by by football and by sports in general. So they put up this facade for for the fans, for the press, for international organizations to cover up these appalling records that they have of violating individual rights and basically th their lack of, of freedom. And they make, uh, so this happens only by the, the, def the default, like the lack of, so it happens, it, it is abetted by FIFA. And it makes the better countries that actually play with, with, with Qatar and go to Qatar kind of like accomplices of this authoritarianism. But I think the main thing, the uh, institution to blame is FIFA for doing this and in the way that we have discussed. But what Qatar needs is not, they don't wanna become better. They just literally need the, the better countries, the better teams in the world to literally and figuratively, you know, play ball with them to be seen as their moral equal which is something that happens not just in sports, but happens also, for instance, in the uh, UN. I have written about the, that as well, but they need to be seen as moral equals. Look, I'm playing with the US. Look, the US here. Look, Messi came here. How can it be bad, you know? Um, so- We're all friends here. We're all the same. We all like exactly. football. We all celebrate Messi. Uh, nothing divides us. Oh, except that we have these torture chambers or accept that uh, we fund uh, terrorism or accept that we persecute the LGBT community. So, yeah. Right. And I think that um, Infantino's, uh, what he said is like really telling of what FIFA stance is, which is disgusting and appalling. And that reminded me of uh, one of, of my many favorite quotes by Ryan Rand, which says, uh, to abstain, from, uh, to abstain from condemning a torture is to become an accessory to the torture and murder of its victims. So that is what FIFA is doing. And it's trying not just not condemning uh, Qatar itself, like FIFA itself, but also trying to prevent others from doing so. And I think that is just horrible and outrageous. Exactly. And uh, one last thing that I want to say. Notice how the apologists of Qatar, like Infantino himself, they actually use a language that is quite familiar to the West, which is the language that says, well, who are we to judge? So Infantino's argument, which was also the argument uh, of uh, some other uh, people was, well, you in the West have done so much. So Infantino actually said for the next uh, 3000 years or so, Europe cannot talk about human rights. And my reply would be, <laughs> you bet we can. <laughs> I haven't tortured anyone. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't oppressed anyone. So I am not my race or my continent. 
I, as Nikos, can tell you, you lead an institution where you should be ashamed of it because you gave the World Cup to Russia and then you gave the World Cup to Qatar. So they use this non-judgmentalist, relativist thing. Well, you know, it's a different culture. Or many Qataris say, oh, you come here, you have to respect our culture. Huh? Why? Why should I respect your culture? Prove to me that your culture is worth of respect and only then will I consider respecting me. But it's this non-judgmentalism which is, uh, which is also prominent in the West uh, that, is, uh, that is mobilized by, uh, by Qatar. Okay, let me say a big thank you here to uh, our super chatters. A huge thank you to Marilyn. Thank you very much for your contribution. And you ask, why does the West appease countries like Qatar, China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, etc.? By the way, Saudi Arabia wants to get the World Cup I think in uh, eight years. And also I think they're making a bid together with Egypt and Greece. So let's hope uh, we won't come back in eight years with another new idea live about the uh, Saudi Arabia World Cup. So why do they do this? Many of them are pragmatists. They have only the short term in mind. So they think, well, it's a good business opportunity. Football will expand. And they cannot see the, well, they cannot see the future. Others don't care and but they're also short-sighted because they think oh this is an opportunity for a quick buck uh, not realizing that what this does to your reputation as an institution and what this does to uh, what this what problems you might find uh, you might find down the way here we are in 2022 and we still discuss the 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 absolute moral same of the 1978 uh, World Cup. So whoever back then thought, well, you know, it's going to be forgotten, they were uh, they were wrong. So I think Marilyn, this is why the West appeases. So they don't understand that there are moral things at stake. Uh, Agustina, have you got any any other way to put it? Uh, no, I I think I think that is that is correct. But there's you know there's this fear of the West to morally condemn and take a stance against these regimes that um, we see it all the time. And we don't see it just, you know, in, in the higher levels of politics, but we see it, you know, uh, at universities and schools where it's like, oh, well, it's their culture. We must resist multiculturalism and respect for quote diversity, even if the values that are being, uh, that are being proposed are just really go against the, values of freedom and what we know that humans need for for to live a, a real you know human life and uh yeah and I, i'd also like to say something that i think you know i'm from argentina it's such a big um such a big deal like sport like football in particular is such a big deal such a big part of the of the culture and i particularly am not uh, like a super football fan at all but my dad was um and i know a lot of people that are and i think that You know, it's so uh, like if if I were a super fan, I would be outrageous, uh, outraged that my beloved sport is being tarnished by this. You know, uh, like I said in an article that I wrote, if if Messi wins, uh, if Argentina wins the the World Cup and Messi raises the cup, I mean it it will be super cool. But also, it's happening in a land where people are not allowed to love who they want and are tortured and, and disappear because of that fact in the land that I, as a woman would be treated as a second class citizen in a land that, you know, uh, it's a safe haven for, for terrorists from Hamas and the Taliban 
who obviously want to destroy the West and all the values of freedoms that we have. So I think oh, that sorry, is and the relationship with Hamas is is again this is not alleged. Qataris openly say, well, we, you know, we, we throw millions and millions to Gaza. Oh, we're just helping Palestinians. We're not helping Hamas. Sorry, continue. No, and, and I think that uh, that is something that I find really, if I were a bigger football fan, I, I find it already very offensive, but I would find it extremely offensive if I was like a big football fan and having my favorite sport be tarnished by, by all these things. Yeah, and I want to send my solidarity to Argentina as they're my favorites to the team I would like to see winning because the first World Cup game I ever watched in 1990 was the semi-final Italy with Argentina, Canigia scoring for Argentina. Anyway, so yes, football football is, as, as a, a journalist says, football is the most beautiful secondary thing in life. And it's a shame that it's in the hands of these uh, of these people who are absolutely I don't know whether to call them amoral because they don't even know they don't even get morality or immoral. I will say immoral because at the end of the day, it's uh, at the end of the day it's uh, it's the it's it's the same. But at least there was a lot of noise. There was a lot of people uh, putting the spotlight on Qatar, and it doesn't come to footballers to to solve this. I mean. Imagine being a 20-year-old uh, English player like Bellingham and you, it falls on your shoulder to make a stand. No, this, as you said, the, the main responsibility here lies with FIFA or it lies with everyone else who should have made the case back then when they got the World Cup, not five days before putting the player on the on the spot. Will you going to boycott the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, career uh, challenge of your life? But... Anyway, that's uh, that's all I had to say about the topic. Again, a huge thank you to the people who kept us company, the people who sent their super chats, and the people who participated in the YouTube chat. Unfortunately, we didn't have to, time to go through all the questions on YouTube. So, Agustina, parting words? Um, yeah, thank you uh, for the super chats also. And uh, we have some resources that you may want to look at to uh, learn more about the topic that we discussed today. Uh, one of them is the Ayn Rand lexicon entry on moral judgment, where you will see uh, a lot of material on how to properly pronounce a moral judgment, which I think we should all do all the time. And also uh, my column for the OC register from last month on the on Qatar's hosting of the FIFA World Cup, which touches on many of the topics that we discussed here today. And uh, next week we have uh, another show. We have we'll be uh, having Elan Giorno and Ben Bayer talking about why altruism is always ineffective. And uh, well, please send us your question. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion about effective altruism, so that's uh, that's what the topic uh, refers to. Yeah. And uh, please send us your questions for future Q&A episodes that we host uh, every once in a while, usually once a month, and we can answer all of your questions relating to objectivism and philosophy there. And of course, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcasting app and a YouTube channel, and please share and uh, on Facebook as well if you enjoyed this episode. And uh, please like, comment, and let us know what you think, and also... Uh, you can send us an email with suggestions for future topics or feedback that you may have to newideal at einrand.org. And we read all of your emails and we reply to many of them. 
So with that said, thank you, Nikos, for, for this discussion. Um, I hope thank you. Argentina wins because you wanted to, and I think Messi deserves it. It's but not Messi, it's gonna yeah, be it's a little bit yeah. it's gonna be a little bit no not a little bit but a lot tarnished, unfortunately, thanks to FIFA and Qatar, if that happens. But well, thank you to the audience and uh, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.